all God's people said, amen. 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 So we are in Romans 2. We're going to start actually in verse 11 from last week. Paul says, God does not show favoritism. Because last week, and this was the final point Pastor Phil ended with, he said, we need to trust God's just judgment. And he says, God does not show favoritism. And what the Jews could say, perhaps, is they could say, oh yeah, he does. Don't you remember, Paul? We're we're God's chosen people. God gave us the law, his spoken word. And, And here's what Paul has to say to that. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. And that, those can sound like two different things, but understand what he's saying is we're all in the same boat. You, you got the law? Good. You're going to be judged by it. Somebody who doesn't have the law? They're going to be punished and, and judged just the same. We're all in the same boat, whether you're aware of the law or, or not. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. But it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. So the Jewish people, they have received the word of God, which is the first about two-thirds of our Bible. It's the Old Testament, right? It's about this much of our Bible. It is the word of God that they have received, his covenant with his people. What they called the law was the law of Moses, but also encompassed the whole Old Testament. And it was God putting before the people, who, here is who I am, and here is how you live in relationship with me. And the Jews thought they were special because they had received the law. And Paul says to them, you know, the law is special. Don't get me wrong, but don't think you're special just because you got the law. Because the point of the law isn't hearing the law. The point of the law is doing the law. It doesn't benefit you anything if you just listen to it, but don't do it. We're going to talk about this in, in a minute, but... Uh, a little bit more, but I want to I touch on this side point that he hits right away because it's an important one. This is in parentheses because it almost feels like Paul takes a little bit of a tangent. He says this, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do na- by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. And so, listen, as as Paul says, it's not the law that makes you special. The Jewish person could say, any, any of us could say, Paul, wait, you're telling me it's not special that I've received this? Of course it's special that I've received this. He said, he says, listen. God has not just declared his standards to you. You think you are special because you've got the rule book that God wants you to follow? Paul Paul says right here, he, he doesn't keep everybody guessing. He says he's given everybody in their hearts their consciences. See, see what Paul's saying here is God does not keep his standards a secret. We can say, well. Those, the Jewish people got the law, right? Everybody else didn't. Well, we could say, how does God, how can God possibly judge everybody else who doesn't have the law? Isn't that unfair? They don't know the rules. Paul says, oh, oh yeah, they, they know the rules. Maybe not all of them, but they've, they've been given a conscience by the living God. He's, he's put some of the requirements of the, the law on their very hearts. That's how we know right and wrong. See, see back in chapter 1, Paul offered a proof of God outside of Scripture. He says, 
even if people don't have Scripture, they can know who God is. How? Through, through his creation. You look around at what he has made, and, and Paul says that he has made himself known. The invisible qualities of God, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen through what he has made so that people are without excuse. So people, we don't need us the Bible to tell us that there is a God. Just look at creation. It will tell us that there is a God if we look hard enough. And now Paul offers a second proof. Besides creation for the existence of God, before we even get to Scripture. It's our conscience. It's, it's the, the, rule, the law of, there's this innate sense of right and wrong that God has planted in everybody. In everybody. If you go back, in fact, and look at the, the codes of law that were back in history, look at the Egyptians and the Hindus and the Babylonians and the Romans and the Greeks, and you look at all the laws that they had in place, if you look across their whole standards of law, you're going to find something kind of surprising. You know what it is? Not, not all the differences. There's going to be differences, sure. But you know what's going to be striking is all the similarities between all those codes of law, between each other, but also with our own code of law that we have today. There's similar things across the board. How is that even possible when all those people grew up in a different time, different millennia, in different countries, different nationalities, different races, different circumstances, different backgrounds, different cultures, how can there be such a similar standard of right and wrong between all of them and between us? Here's the simple answer. It didn't come from us. We didn't just make this up. God has implanted a sense of right and wrong in all of us. This is, if you want to dive into this more than I can this morning, read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. This is the basis of that whole book where he starts his argument is not with the existence of God based on Scripture, but the existence of God based on our sense of right and wrong. And we can miss this because the world is so dark. Amen? You say, like, what standard of right and wrong out there? Well, listen, there is. As much as people might try to deny it, as much as it can be hard to see at times, there is a standard of right and wrong. C.S. Lewis says, there is some standard outside of ourselves that we didn't make up and yet we find pressing down on us. Take just the sense of fairness that we all have. You didn't make this up. I didn't make this up. But we all agree that there's things that are fair and things that are unfair. I remember one time I was driving uh, in a parking lot. I was down at Arundel Mills Mall. Anybody ever been to Arundel Mills Mall? It was my first time there. And you know what shocked me about that mall? This doesn't have much to do with my story, but I have to share this every time I talk about this. It is a mall, it's a mile long inside. Maybe it's bigger now, but it's a mile. You walk all the way around the mall. It's a loop, and it's a mile inside. Do you know what they have when you get there? Before you even get inside, you know what they have? They have valet parking. Think about it. I'm going to go to a mall, and I am going to walk one mile inside the mall, but I am unwilling to walk an eighth of a mile from my car to the doors. So I'm going to pay 15, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's more now, but 15 bucks for valet parking. That doesn't make any sense to me. I thought that was crazy. And so I was not going to pay for valet parking, so I went to park somewhere else. And then I understood why they have valet parking. <laughs> Every single spot in the lot was full. I was driving up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. And then I finally, there was this family that they... they they were approaching their car. They had their bags. They had their kids. Everybody was looking tired. They were leaving. 
Oh, thank goodness. So I pull up and I turn on my blinker, right? Turn on my blinker because I'm going to pull in there. And they, they open the trunk and they put their packages in and they close the trunk and they open the doors and they put their kids in and they strap them in and they get coats off and then they, they get themselves settled and they turn on the radio and they put snacks out. I don't know what they were doing, like three-course meals for their kids. They were there for a while. But then they finally, those white lights come on. That they, They're in reverse, right? And I've got my blinker. Finally, it's going to pay off. And they pull out and they wave, apologies, thanks for your patience, <laughs> Yeah, yep, you bet. And then this car comes the other way and pulls in the spot. Mm. Right? Felt like getting out of the car screaming at him. Now listen. I'd driven up and down every road. Every other parking spot in that lot was filled. Did I shake my fist at those cars, at those drivers? No. They were there first. It's, it's fair. Like, of course they would get the spot. But this one... This one was mine. I mean, that's what's fair. People say this standard outside of ourselves of, of fairness, of right and wrong, doesn't exist. Steal their parking spot. <laughs> That'll show them real quick. There is something outside of ourselves. Yeah. But no, the standard exists. That's why, that's why slavery, abuse, the Holocaust... For most of us, that's why we have a sense that, that these things are evil, these things are wrong. You say, what about the people who don't think those are evil? Well, yeah, li listen, there's outliers, and there's, there's psychopaths and serial killers, right? How, how come they don't think that's wrong? Well, listen, what, what color is that, the background? Red. If someone in here happens to be colorblind, does that make that not red? No, no, it just, it just thank you, no. <laughs> it's obvious, Right? It just means somebody has a, has, there's a brokenness inside them that they, they can't perceive this as what it is. So just because there's some people who exist who can't perceive the, the right and wrong for what it is doesn't mean it doesn't exist. You say, what about when a whole culture gets it wrong? Abortion or slavery? Things that they call right. Well, then, then we're back to Romans chapter 1, right? So review the last few weeks and read. We, we can say no to this innate sense of right and wrong. We can harden our hearts Harden our consciences against this sense of right and wrong. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. God has placed it in us. And, and, and so here's the thing. It doesn't mean we know every single law. He hasn't placed in our hearts everything that he put in the Old Testament as his law, but he doesn't need to. He just needs one, right? Adam and Eve, how many rules did they have to follow? How many laws did God give them? One. That was enough. No, you blew it, guys. He, he doesn't need to tell Gentiles or unchristians uh, the, the whole law. Just a little bit that they know is enough to know that they blow it. That we can't live up to these standards. That we need a rescue outside of ourselves. One commentary I read said, that, said this, people are going to be judged not on the light they didn't have, but on the light that they did have. God in his common grace have, has offered light to every single one of us, and every single one of us, Paul will say, ha, have turned away from that light, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So God does not keep his standards a secret. That's how we know his judgment is still fair. So now, now Paul turns his attention back to those in the light, those who have the light of the law, and he says this, now, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior... Because you are instructed by the law. If you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, 
a light for those who are in dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You think you are so great because you are all of these things. Think about this. You then, who teach others, do you teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And it's a lot like what he said early in the chapter. Do you judge other people for their sin? You, you sin yourself. You don't have a leg to stand on. He says, this law that is given to you, here's his point. This law is, not, is to be lived, not just listened to. He says to the Jewish people, you think you're so great because you've heard the law? It's not just for you to hear and teach others about. It's for you to do. It's for you to live out. Because they had looked at the law and examined it, and they said, this is how we follow God. And they had crossed every T and dotted every I. And they were so focused on the, the right sacrifices and incenses and what, what to work and not work on the Sabbath meant. And every little jot and tittle of the law. He said, you're missing the point. The point isn't to know the law. The point is to do it. And all of us have fallen short of that. The law is to be lived, not just listened to. And, and here's the thing. We can make this mistake with the word of God, can't we? I mean, we have been blessed by having the Word of God in print for us, by having more access to it than any nation or generation before us. We can listen to podcasts. We can listen to sermons. We can come here and sit like this or tune in online. We can access the Word of God in so many ways. And you ever, you ever hear a message and you come out, you walk out of there feeling so great about that message. Oh, man, that was such a good message. You just feel like, man, I, I've got convicted. I've got encouraged. I, I, I just, I could be done. You ever hear, experience the Word of God in that way? And you're like, you know what? God just taking me home right now. That's it. Well, here's the thing. It's not just to hear. It's to live out. See, we... Uh, my wife and I, Rach, we're, we're foodies. We really love good food. We love all kinds of good food. We love Chinese. We love Japanese, Korean, um, Thai food, Mexican. I love sushi. Of Korea, so many different kinds of food. There's this Afghani restaurant down in Baltimore. I love that place. We love so many different kinds of food. We love the flavors and the tastes and the spices and all of that. And, and we're, we're raising our kids. We're trying to expose them to a lot of different tastes so that we can raise some foodies too, right? Because good food is a gift from God, right? It's to be appreciated. But every once in a while, in our home, just once in a while, I'm sure, the food gets complained about. Oh, this isn't what I want. I'd rather have something else. And you know what happens then is we don't try to convince our kids or ourselves sometimes, because, man, my wife put, uh, puts onions in things. I really don't see the point. <laughs> she says you can't taste them anyway. Then why put them in? <laughs> but there's sometimes when what's in front of us, it doesn't look that appetizing. It doesn't look that great. And you know what? We've got this phrase in our home that we say. We say food is just fuel. I mean, we love food, don't get me wrong. It's a blessing, don't get me wrong. But sometimes you got to remember, food is just fuel. Life isn't all about food. The point of food is to get up from the table and fuel our bodies at the table so that when we get up, we can go and work our bodies hard. 
And we can lean into school or learning or classes and learn more about God's word and his will for our lives. See, the point of life isn't food. Food is to fuel us for the rest of life that really matters, right? When it comes to the word of God, don't we love eating? <laughs> I love eating. I love a good message, a good podcast, taking a Bible class. Bible project videos. There are so many ways to learn, and I get so invigorated by learning. But I love feasting on the Word of God. Do you love feasting on the Word of God? I, I enjoy that. Listen, enjoy that. I, I hope there is something this morning as we open God's Word. I hope there's something that sustains you. But listen to me. Don't fake yourself out that this is the end goal to just feast on the Word of God. Like at some point. An hour or so from now, no, I'm kidding, a little bit less from now, you need to push back from the table, and you're going to walk out of here, and we need to push back from the table and get on up and put these calories to use, because God's intention for us is, is not to be listeners, but to be followers. Don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers. It doesn't mean we're justified or made righteous by what we do, Right? We're made righteous only by Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ doesn't come to rescue us and leave us the same. He gave us this word to transform every area of our lives. So enjoy the feasting. Enjoy the eating. But the point of God, the, this is not the word of God itself. The point is to draw us to Jesus Christ and follow him. And put the calories to work. Because we can fool ourselves, right? We can hear things and think we're, think we're good. Hear the word of God, hear a good message, and, and think we're good. But God has a deeper work. To, listen to me. God has a deeper work to do in your life. Do you know that? He doesn't want to leave you the same. I want to introduce you to somebody who he hasn't left the same. My brother Denny Jurgensen down here. He has uh, been transformed by the love of Christ like so many of us. And he has a story to tell of how God continued to change his life after he met Jesus. Denny, come on up, and would you, uh, would you please welcome my brother Denny. I don't like sushi, by the way. <laughs> good morning, Grace family. It's good to see you all. It's good to be here. I'd like to share my testimony with you today. I had a pretty average upbringing. I went to public school up until grade nine, then went to a Catholic high school in Baltimore. As a child, my parents did not go to church, but I was a drop-off to Sunday school. I played football in high school and remembered that girls hung out with my sisters because they were interested in going out with me. I remember one girl in particular, and I will come back to that later. <laughs> I was married at 20 and so soon had two children, a son and a daughter. Early on, I found out my wife was very controlling and our relationship was very controlling. My relationship with the Lord began in 1986, and at that time, 
I was planning an adulterous relationship with a woman, and our meeting was postponed several times. As I look back, I saw that God was postponing to prevent that relationship. During this time, I was listening to a radio podcast that uh, Ben just mentioned, Mere Christianity. God was pursuing me and finally able to commit myself by saying no to Satan and yes to God. It was a light bulb moment for me. I started to attend church, but wanted to do more to serve God. I joined a program called Contact York, a telephone ministry where people called in to talk to somebody. I stayed in that ministry for several years, but was struggling in my marriage. And it finally came to a boiling point. A pastor friend of mine spoke in a message that once you accept Christ into your life, he will begin to weed out all the garbage that I had been carrying around. He did exactly that and showed me that I had been abusive to my wife. This had been going on for several years and Lori, my wife, finally gave me an ultimatum to get some help or to get out. In my mind, Lori was, she was rigged and controlling and she would lash out at me and, and our children as well. I look back at her and her rigid standards. I see now, however, but my response to her was ungodly. I sinned in my anger, and this wasn't God's way for me. I had been listening to Christian radio, attending church, and still abusing my wife. I was fooling myself, thinking that I was in God's will. After a month-long struggle with denial, and that's not a river in Egypt, I finally joined a 26-week pro program, a domestic violence program. I felt that I didn't belong there until I realized that I was getting closer to God. I felt this was the best experience that had ever happened to me at this time. When I finished the program, I asked to be a part of it, helping other men who were just coming in. I worked this program for many months until one day my son and I were hit by a drunk driver in Stewartstown back in 1991. I suffered a traumatic brain injury and was in a coma. My son came out with minor injuries because I was able to swerve the car so that I took most of the impact. I have no memory of that accident. I came out of a coma 10 days later, but my full memory did not return for several years. My short-term memory is still impaired to this day.
I don't know exactly when. I believe it was at the scene of the crash. My heart had stopped beating. And I had a near-death experience. I literally saw the light of God and had a sense of peace that I had never felt before. My wife, my wife felt I had become a different person. I went through a personality change, which was part of the head injury, and was divorced in 1993. I spent several years working physical and vocational recovery, including 18 months of bookkeeping. I spent a year looking for work with no success until I met the director of the Head Start program in Indiana, Pennsylvania. I was asked to speak to the Head Start parents on the subject of domestic violence since the director knew my experience from my resume. I did speak and received much praise from the Head Start director, and she told me I miss my calling. I knew this was God talking to me, and I was accepted to Mount Aloysius College to study behavioral science for two years. While I knew God was with me, negative effects of my brain injury I sustained were also working on me and and this uh, and this became a dark time at college and afterwards I soon became involved in extreme evil where all I cared about was sex drugs and rock and roll I was working with a band as a manager, and there was plenty of music, alcohol, marijuana, and lots of carnal lusts. Yet God continued to pursue me. Though I was not aware of it at the time, he showed me the character and his character and led me on a path of healing and getting right with him. In 2008, God introduced me to a woman that I had talked about earlier. She had become my best friend. Remember the young woman I told you about at the beginning of my story? Well, God used her to bring me back to him all those years later. She's not here today, but I hope she's listening online. Hi, Deb. She even told me about a church on a hill in Shrewsbury. And 10 years later, I am still here where my relationship with our Lord Jesus continues to grow stronger each day. Currently, I serve weekly in the church office at the Harvest Cafe and with Adopt-a-Block. I also serve as a greeter. Being around 
good Christian friends and serving God regularly in the community helps me to stay on the right path. It's only God's faithfulness and love that allows me to follow and serve him. He is so good. Thank you for letting me share my story. God has a deeper work for us. I mean, he said it in there with that message that the uh, pastor had, that he heard from a, a pastor friend of his, that as we say yes to Christ, he'll start to clean out the junk. Because he has more for us to do. He, he doesn't just want us to hear this, he wants us to live it. And you know what happens when we do that? We become a, a light to those in darkness. A guide to the blind. The, uh, those who can speak wisdom to those who are in foolishness. And that's like I look at Denny's life, and that's what he does here as he serves in so many places. There was a video, I don't know if you all remember, back in September, October, there was a video that we played that was from a, a fellow named Roy who used to be homeless and how he had encountered Jesus here. And, and the, the name he mentioned besides Jesus was Denny. <laughs> he encountered Denny's smile and heart. And he encountered God's love through that. And so Paul, when he was saying this back a few minutes ago, he called these Jewish people, you think you're convinced you're a guide to the blind, a light for those in darkness? I don't think he's being sarcastic. Those are all good things. He says you get there by being taught by God first, having your life changed first. Of course, there's another option. Oh, I went too far back. Uh-oh i got to go forward. There's, a, there's another option. You know what he says after all this? It, we, can, we can be taught by this law. We can live it and not just listen to it. And then he can use this as a light to those in blindness. But here's what he says right after that. He says, you who boast in the law, the ones who aren't doing that, the ones who aren't being shaped and transformed by the, law, by the word of God, look at this. The, you who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Ouch. Listen, we don't think that highly of names anymore, but, but the Jewish people, one of the most precious, holy, honorable things was the name of God to them. When, when, when writers copied, made copies of Scripture, of the Old Testament, they would skip the name of God. They actually wouldn't write it because they thought it, the name of God was so holy that it didn't deserve to be written down. The Essenes later on, this is centuries later when they were copying the Old Testament, what they would do when they, when they copied the Old Testament and came to the name of God, you know what they do? Is they would stop before they wrote the name of God. They would get up from the table. They would go over and they would bathe themselves in this ritual bath. They would come back. They would pick up their quill. They would write the name of God. They would set the quill down and never use it to write anything else again. And they would go back and they would bathe themselves and cleanse themselves again, and then come back to the table, and then start writing. Why? Because this, the name of God was not just a word. 
to them. It was the name of the sovereign, holy, righteous, just, loving creator of the universe. It's far more than a word. And so the Jewish people, the worst thing you, one of the worst things you could do was blaspheme the name of God, right? That's one of the Ten Commandments. Don't take God's name in vain. And Paul says, you're taking it in vain, not by, not by what you say, but by what you do and your attitude. What does this mean for us? Do you know, when God called Paul, it's back in Acts, Acts chapter 9, you can go look it up later. Jesus showed up to Paul. And you know what he says about Paul in that chapter? He goes to Ananias, and Ananias is like, you sure you got the right guy? And Jesus says, oh yeah, I've got the right guy. He says, he is my chosen instrument to carry my name to kings and Gentiles and the nation of Israel. He's the one. I've got a job for beyond belief. He's going to carry my name. And we as Christ followers have the same charge Paul does, to carry his name. Do you understand how weighty, how, what an honor this is, but this is, this is heavy stuff. This is the name and the reputation of God. God, God revealed himself, and he, we have a new name of God, the name of Jesus Christ. That's a precious name. Is that name precious to you? Precious name. Do we carry it well? Because here's the risk. If we don't carry it well, how we carry his name may cause others to curse him. Do we realize this? Paul says they blaspheme God because of you. We look at all these people who are against Christianity. All these people who think God is judgmental or wrong. And we think they're rebellious and we think they're just uh, oblivious. Maybe... Have we ever considered that maybe one of the reasons they don't understand who God is is because all they see is us? How, how many people have you heard about who have a hard time thinking about God as their father? Scripture talks about this all over. Jesus called God Father. He called God Abba. And there's... I've, I've met tens of people, there's hundreds, there's thousands that we've heard stories of that, that have a hard time imagining God as Father. Why? Because they had an earthly father and he didn't carry the name. Listen, all my dad's out there, I'm right with you. Like, are we carrying the name of our Father God to our children? Jesus calls himself a husband to us who sacrifices for his bride, the church, and washes her in the pure water of the word so that he may present her holy and blameless on the day of Christ Jesus, on the day when that wedding happens. Husbands, are we carrying the name of Christ in our own homes? This is where it starts. Moms and dads, wives and husbands, are we carrying the name of Christ to our kids? Are we reflecting the heart of God to them? And, and then it extends out to the community uh, or around us. Do they think 
God is judgmental because we're judgmental. Do they think God is angry and hates sinners? Maybe because we have. Are we not carrying his name well? You know where my kids learn the F word? You know where my, my, my kids learned the worst, most offensive word in the English language? It wasn't at school. They're homeschooled. Hopefully they didn't hear it there. <laughs> <Whew>. <laughs> you all sit down and talk to me if that's where they heard it. <laughs> they didn't hear it on a movie. They didn't hear it on somebody out in Walmart who had a bad day. They saw it on a sign, and the sign said three things on it. It said, Trump is my president. Jesus is my Lord. F. Biden. And that's how my kids learn the most offensive word in the English language because it was on the same sign. It's the precious name of Jesus Christ. I don't tell that story to judge whoever put that sign up. I tell that story to say, like, all right, how are we carrying the name? Is this name precious to you? Like, are we carrying it well? Because it matters. Gandhi was quoted as saying, I love your Christ. I just don't love your Christians. Oh, man, I pray that I don't cause somebody to say that. I probably have. I probably have. The good news is there's grace for that. There is grace for that. But it doesn't mean we stay where we are because God has a deeper work for all of us. He has a deeper work for us all to walk out of here and carry his name to push back from the table and stand up and burn some calories showing people the heart of our God. Maybe the only way they're going to see it because they haven't picked up one of these in years. But we have the opportunity to show who Jesus is. Are we carrying the name well? Now, now here's the thing. This can sound like a lot of weight, I know. And, and what we can do from this and take from this is get a tape measure out and say, okay, where are all the way? And this is, we got to examine our lives and say, where am I not in line with the will of God? Where is my heart not following Jesus? Where might I be carrying his name poorly? Yes, like we need to do that. That's what I'm encouraging us to do. But not to do it with shame. Because what we can walk out of here doing is then this becomes a tape measure and a rule book. And we, we spend every minute of our lives measuring our life and how are we, how are we living up to the rules because, if I'm, because I want to carry his name well and the motivation's good. But then we start looking at everything externally in our lives. And that's not the intention. The intention is to examine it and allow God to change our hearts because it's what's inside that matters. So, so if you, like me, are convicted by this word, I'm not encouraging you to feel shame because our confidence doesn't come from how we failed. Our confidence doesn't come from what we do. And that's where, just, just give me one more minute, like this is where Paul ends and lands the passage. Look at these last words. He says circumcision. He turns his, uh, turns his attention from law to circumcision. This outward sign that they're following God. 
This is how I know I'm in God's will. I'm going to, because I'm circumcised. Right? This is what they said, this mark in the flesh. Circumcision, Paul says it has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you've become as though you have not been circumcised. What does the sign matter if you're not following him? So then if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, they will not be regarded, will they not be regarded as though they were, who were circumcised? The one who's not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law, he's going to show up the other people. He's going to condemn you who, even though you have the written code in circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Listen, he he lands with this in in chapter 2. He says, you put all this weight behind this sign, behind this physical thing that happened to you, and you think that makes all the difference? He, He says, what matters is not the sign. What matters is what the sign represents. Not that you're circumcised on the outside. Not that flesh was cut off on the outside, but that on the inside, that on on the inside, your heart of flesh has been cut out and you've been given a new heart by the Lord of all creation that can be molded and shaped and changed by Him. The, the, The true people of God are not the ones who follow the signs, but who have the inward transformation of the Spirit of God living in them. And so listen, like we can, we can worry about how we carry the name and we can start to look at our lives for evidence that we're Christ followers, right? Well, I was baptized. Listen, baptism is a really good sign. Jesus said, do this. But it's just a sign. What matters isn't the sign. What matters is not that you were put under the water, but that you were crucified with Christ and it is no longer you who lives, but he who lives in you. You can take communion. It's a good sign. He said, do this in remembrance of me. But what what matters is not the sign. What matters is you realize that he poured out that blood for you. And that by drinking that cup, it's just a symbol of what's inside, that you're in relationship with him. And so here's the thing. Where's our confidence this morning? Our confidence, I need to tell you, it comes from Christ, not from Christianity. See, when we hear we don't carry the name well, when we hear we've failed in the past, we can turn Christianity into this checklist to say, here's, where my, here's how I know. Here's how I know I'm really with him. Here's how I know I'm really in God's will. Well, you know what, if... If you're not doing something this word says, yeah, check yourself. But but don't turn this into a rule book because our confidence doesn't come from Christianity. Our confidence doesn't come from the fact that we were baptized. It doesn't come from the fact that we took communion last week. It doesn't come from the fact that we're sitting in this church right now. It doesn't come from the fact of all the Bible studies we've had. It doesn't come from our theological correctness, although there's core things we need to believe in this gospel of Jesus Christ, but it doesn't come from being theologically correct about all the other side points. Our confidence doesn't come from our last experience of passionate worship or a bold prayer life. Our confidence doesn't come from the Spirit showing up in miracles and healings, although we might. 
Our confidence doesn't come from any of the signs and any of the symbols of religion because this isn't religion, this is relationship. Our confidence doesn't come from any of this. Our confidence comes from Christ. And I wonder how many of us have this week been tempted to put our confidence in something else. As we've encountered those who don't believe what we believe, we say, well, here's here's what sets us apart. Let me tell you what sets us apart. There's a name. It's Jesus Christ. It's what he has done that sets us apart from any other religion, any other belief, any other hope that people could put to. It's him and him alone. Where's your confidence this morning? Let's put it in him. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this call to us this morning through your word. God, I thank you that your word is alive and active, and I pray that it has been working on us. I know it's been working on me. I thank you that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it cuts right to the core of us, and it performs a surgery that hurts, but it's a surgery that heals So God, I pray that today that you would use this word in our lives to draw us back to yourself. We get so distracted. We get so defensive about our faith, Lord. And we put our confidence and hope in so many other things. But you call us back every time to just say, listen, I'm here. I'm faithful. The confidence doesn't come from what we go out of here and do, but what you have done already for us. God, we want to live our lives in response to that. Jesus, we thank you for your name. It means so many other things to other people, but Lord, we we thank you for what that name means to those of us who follow you. It is the name of our Lord. It is the name of our Savior. Jesus, you are precious to us. I thank you that we are rescued from the wrath of God, that it is no longer in our future but in our past because of your finished work on the cross. And Jesus, that we stand accepted and redeemed by your blood. God, restore our confidence in you alone this morning. And we will praise you for it. And all God's people said, amen. Would you stand with me, Grace, and let's worship him one more time.